And thank you for your warm welcome, David. And uh, good to see you always, uh, old friends, uh, new friends, and uh, others I haven't yet met. Of course, I've been on and off uh, returning to, uh, still think it is Dunfermline Free Church, in fact. <laughs> but uh, good to be here with you again today and to know that God's still building up his uh, church here uh, at New City Church. Well, as I think the notices to the uh, that went out suggested, we, I'll be here again next week, word of warning there, uh, with a, a kind of a mini-series. So this week, getting God's promises. Next week, getting God's blessings. Uh, two great themes uh, in the Bible that go from start to finish. And we just want to think uh, this week about promises and next week about blessings to see how they quite work, these great themes in the Christian life. And getting God's promises. What does it mean both to get them, to receive them, that is, and what does it mean to get them, that is, to understand them? You know, oh, I get it. And the same again next week with blessings. Well, promise, of course, is one of the most important themes in the Christian life. Uh, there's a familiar hymn to many of us, I'm sure, standing on the promises that cannot fail. When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail by the living word of God, which we've been thinking about already this morning, I shall prevail standing on the promises of God. It's a great hymn, isn't it? And it's a great theme. And of course, promise is one of the first things that God did for his human creatures when we spoiled God's good creation. One of the first of the acts of God to our first parents was to promise in his curse to the serpent in the garden that the offspring of the woman would bruise your head in Genesis chapter 3. That first hint that there would come one to deliver humankind from uh, the enemy. And we could go chapter by chapter, book by book, and we'd still be here Wednesday or Thursday. Uh, but just skip to the very last chapter of the New Testament, the other end of the Bible altogether. Revelation 22, we read, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. So we can say, Come Lord Jesus. And even in that verse, we see something of the reciprocity of promise, don't we? That the promise can be made, I am coming soon. And we respond, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Sounds wonderful. And it's no surprise then that promise features so largely in Christian discipleship. And yet, I'm sure each of us knows that promise has its own awkward contours, um, but you promised, you know, have you ever heard those words said to you? Have you ever said those words? And we get this sense that sometimes there can be slippage between the giving of a promise and its being received. And we see reflection of this even in our own, uh, even in the Bible again. I don't know how often you'll have sung Psalm 89, but it's a, it's a, an amazing psalm of great faith in God's promise of one to come in the line of David and great disappointment that it all seems to have crashed to the ground. And in fact, that great hymn that I read as we began, Standing on the Promises that Cannot Fail, 
was written by a hymn writer who had suffered mental breakdown uh, and had contracted malaria and who was deeply weakened in mind and body and spirit and yet could pen this hymn, Standing on the Promises of God, I Shall Not Fail. Actually, it's the promise that won't fail in the hymn. So what does it mean then to get God's promise, both to understand it and to receive it? Well, uh, as David's already read for us, we're turning to the book of Joshua this morning to look at this theme. Because the book of Joshua, uh, in one sense, is pivotal in the Bible as a whole in terms of God's promise and the storyline of promise in the Bible. You know, I'm sure we'll be familiar with the sense that God promised to Abraham, the patriarch, that to your offspring, I will give this land. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojourn, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. That's Abraham's promise. And yet we go through Genesis and Exodus and they're in Egypt and Leviticus and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all the books of Moses. And at the end of the the great Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Israel's still outside the land. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is standing there with the Israelites in in Moab, modern-day Jordan, outside the land, looking in. So that in some ways, it's in Joshua where the land is taken, received, and inhabited, that that great storyline of promise from Abraham finds its fulfillment. So we've read the story of Caleb already. I won't reread it now, but maybe you keep your Bibles open to it, uh, or your phones open to it, or whatever your tablet's open to it, whatever you've you've got. Um, I'll remind us of what it says from time to time, but we will be looking at it. But just to set it in context, clearly we've jumped into the middle of the story, haven't we? Uh, and if any story readers, novel readers, you know you generally don't begin at chapter 37 of, of the novel. What's going on? Well, what's going on here? Now the men of Judah approach Joshua at Gilgal. Well, there's a whole story of why they're at Gilgal and why they're still at Gilgal. It's just inside the promised land. It's the place where they've first camped on crossing the River Jordan and coming into the promised land. And they'll be using that as their base for uh, until Joshua 18, in fact. But uh, roughly to set where we are in context, book of Joshua, 24 chapters, falls roughly in half. The first 12 chapters, the more familiar part of the book, uh, tells the story of taking the land of promise. Uh, And there's some familiar stories there, but Rahab and and, uh, fighting the battle of Jericho, maybe the problematic story of Achan and so on. Uh, And that's the taking the land of promise. And then the second half of the book, chapters 13 to 24, not so familiar generally, report how Israel inhabited the land. So taking the land and inhabiting the land. That's the book of Joshua and Weir in this less familiar part of the book about inhabiting the land. And each half of the book, however, concludes with a summary statement. In fact, there's several of these sprinkled through the book as a whole. Maybe next time you, next time you read Joshua, uh, 
these will help guide you through the book. But at the end of chapter 11, there's a little summary statement. Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. Now that's the, we might say, promise to Moses. In, in Hebrew, there is no distinction. The word for to, to declare something to someone is to promise to them, uh, depending on context. It certainly means that here. So Joshua took the land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Great summary statement involving God's promise. And the second half of the book has an even longer summary statement, again emphasizing God's promise. And I'll just read a little bit of it, because it goes on for a, a bit. It's the end of Joshua 21. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and settled there. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So there it is again, the fulfillment of promise. And it's already instructive, I think, to compare these two summaries in terms of what the promise is. The first one focuses on Joshua's role in receiving the promise of God. And the second of the summary statements, the emphasis falls entirely on God's faithfulness in bringing the promise about. And so there's a question, maybe a silly question we could ask here. Well, well which is it? Is it about Joshua and Israel's faithfulness and action and obedience in receiving the promise? Or is it about God's commitment and faithfulness to them as an aspect of promise? Of course, the right answer is yes. It's both. This is working out on a national scale how God's faithfulness works its way out in the life of his faithful covenant people. But I thought it would be helpful for us this morning to spend a little time with Caleb and see how promise worked out in a personal way in Caleb's own life. So that's what we'll do for the rest of our time in this passage this morning. And we'll ask three questions about the uh, of it. Who is this Caleb? Who's this person? Uh, what's the nature of promise and Caleb's response to it? And what was provided in that promise? So a person, a promise, and a provision. You know, there's my Baptist background coming in right there. And we start then with the person of Caleb. Who is Caleb? Well, three brief observations about Caleb. Some of them quite obvious, but one of them a little bit surprising. And we'll start with the surprising one. Because first of all, Caleb is an outsider. That might strike us as a little bit strange, because we know that he's one of the two faithful spies. From the book of Numbers, Caleb and Joshua were the two spies who brought back this report of the land, that it's a good land, and God will be with us, and let's go up and take it. And as Caleb reminisces in this passage itself, the other 10 spies caused the people to fear and they turned back from the land. But notice how God, uh, how the passage refers to Caleb at the beginning and end of our story. 
So in verse 14, now the men of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him. And again, at the end of our passage in verse 14, so Hebron, as the promises fulfilled, has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite. Caleb, son of Jephunneh. Now, what's a Kenizzite? And if you met one in the street, how would you know it? Uh, well, it's unusual to describe Caleb as a Kenizzite. There is one other place uh, in the book of Numbers where Caleb's referred to this way, and it's worth connecting that passage than this with this one, but we don't have time for that this morning. A little bit of homework for you. Um, but what's a Kenizzite? Well, a Kenizzite is one of the descendants of Esau, one of Esau's sons. Remember, there's the, the two boys, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob is the son of promise, and Jacob's other name is Israel. And that's the line of promise. Esau is not from the line of promise, and Kenaz is one of his offspring, and Kenaz goes on to be associated with the Edomites. That story is told in Genesis 36, if you want to follow that up. But it may surprise us, but what is being pointed to insistently as this passage begins and ends, that Caleb's origins are not among the people of Israel. Caleb is an outsider. He's not a native Israelite. I think this is helpful on all kinds of levels. One of them, if we run into people, especially in these days with conflict in the Middle East, where people say, ah, oh, Joshua, that's just a book of genocide. Not in the least. It's a very superficial and misleading reading of the book of Joshua. Book of, we don't have time to spend in Joshua chapter 5, but when Joshua meets the angel, the commander of the Lord's army, before he knows who that is, he, Joshua bravely goes up to this one who has a drawn sword and says, whose side are you on, Israel's or our enemies? And how does the commander of the army of the Lord respond? No. Not on your side. Not on the Canaanite side. But who is on the Lord's side? And that's what the book of Joshua is about. Rahab does not belong to the people of God. But by the end of chapter 6, she's incorporated into the people of promise. The Gibeonites use rather dubious means to worm their way into the covenant people. But their status as part of the covenant people is recognized and embraced by God. Caleb's family long ago was not part of the covenant people. But they saw in Israel's God their God, and have become part of the covenant people. So it's important for us to recognize, especially in thinking about the theme of promise, that there are no second-class citizens among the people of God. It doesn't matter what your origins are, or whether you're a new Christian or come from a line of Christians. Many generations, perhaps like Caleb's family, many generations back, what matters, as Caleb's life demonstrates, is one's commitment to living faithfully for the one true and living God. 
means for a Christian is that we've turned away from sin in turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, recognizing in him the one who is the one who saves me, living faithfully for him by the power of the Holy Spirit and in keeping step with God's spirit. So Caleb's an outsider and yet still a receiver of promise. Second, Caleb's obedient. Now, this is something that we recognize very obviously about him. Uh, And it's reinforced again in our passage today. Caleb describes it quite straightforwardly in verse 8, contrasting himself with the other spies who made the, the heart of the people melt with fear. And yet he says, I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Quite right. It's interesting to see the way that disobedience had an effect on the life of God's people as those ten spies doubted God's promise and capacity and caused the hearts of the people to fear. Does it work the other way around too, that faithfulness encourages the faithfulness in others? Well, it's not stated so clearly as that massive falling away from as a result of disobedience and doubt. But it's clear, I think, from the wider story that in Caleb's family, faithfulness had its effect. If we read into chapter 15, yet more homework for you. There's a little story embedded in the middle of chapter 15. Again, it's part of the Caleb story about his daughter. Again, Joshua is not just a book about fighting men, it's about Rahab. It's about Aksa. It's about the daughters of Zelophehad. And Aksa, his daughter, acts boldly to ensure that she and her family settle well in the land of promise. And when we look further on into the story, into the beginning of the book of Judges, the, the first of the deliverers or judges of Israel is Othniel. Caleb's brother, living faithfully, and on whom is the Spirit of the Lord. So it seems that obedience and promise and faithfulness do have a kind of synergy, as we'll see again in just a moment. Almost done with who is Caleb. He's an outsider. He's obedient. Not to put too fine a point on it, he's old. Spells it out, doesn't he? He's 85, which I think at least qualifies as senior. And it's one of the many different calls to perseverance that the book of Joshua provides. This note that Caleb is old adds another. That note of urgency to persist in faithfulness even to old age and gray hairs as the psalmist has it in Psalm 71. I think across the centuries, Caleb's bold tenacity in realizing the promise of God resonates with that, say, of the Apostle Paul, who in Philippians 3, his last letter, could write to the church in Philippi that he's pressed on towards the goal of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Now, Caleb's got a couple of decades on me, Uh, But my life has been encouraged by faithful servants of God. Don't think he'd mind mentioning, and perhaps this doesn't go on the Internet anyway, but some of you will know Fergus MacDonald, 
old friend of mine, not far off, Caleb's age, persevering, uh, looking to the promise, being faithful, uh, exemplary service like Caleb's. And I think in Caleb's example in Paul's and other faithful saints, we see this encouragement not to be worn down, but to be faithful, looking to the promise, as we've sung of already this morning and as we'll uh, continue to think about living as a faithful disciple of Jesus. So uh, quite a bit then about Caleb, his status as an outsider, his obedience and his age. Um, but this is a person of promise. So let's look now, having considered who Caleb is, to think about the nature of his relationship to the promise that God has given him. So second thing then, the promise. And here, not four aspects of the promise, just two. Uh, one is that it's Caleb's own promise. Now, he refers to it here that on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance. And it, it's not just Moses's promise, but if we look back, where did Moses make that promise? Well, it comes in Deuteronomy chapter 1. I'll just read the verses for you, where Moses reports that God said, not a single person of this evil generation will see the good land I promised to give your ancestors except Jacob, sorry, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He will see it, and I will give to him the territory on which he has walked and to his descendants because he has wholeheartedly followed me. And again, there's that Note that obedience and promise come together. And I think this is a place to tread carefully for more than one reason. There are many scriptural promises in which we can have confident faith. The faith that, say, the writer to the Hebrews spoke of when he said, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The passage that underlay the hymn that we began with this morning. There's a but coming, though, but God hasn't promised Hebron to us. He's promised it to, it's a specific promise to Caleb. And it comes about both on the basis, as we've seen, of his wholehearted obedience and the generosity of, faithful, of, of Caleb's faithful God. So personal promises are a difficult area, I think. But... Does Caleb have anything to say to us yet? Well, I think he does. Because, as another preacher once put it, Caleb serves as an illustration of the way in which God not only keeps his promises in detail, but keeps his promises in the way in which he vindicates the faithfulness and the trust and the utter obedience of his children and his servants. Caleb's been clinging to this promise for 45 years. You know, there might have been those who said to him, Caleb, you know, you're getting on. I think, I think that's not going to happen. Caleb clings to the promise. And perhaps there are biblical promises which God has laid on your heart and which you have felt God's spirit encouraging you to claim in, in some sense. It's been a long time coming. 
Again, Caleb's example, I think, connects with that of the Apostle Paul. To be those who, like them, have, as Paul put it, fought the good fight, finished the race, kept the faith. For as Paul goes on to say, he looks forward, this is Paul now, to the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award to me on that day, not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. That's in 2 Timothy 4. God's timing may not be your timing. God's timing may not have been Caleb's ideal timing, but God's promises are sure and call for this perseverance. So it's Caleb's own promise, and we need to think carefully about what that means. But it's also important, I think, helpful to see Caleb's humility concerning the promise. Now, there's a slight difficulty here, and that is that we're using the NIV. I asked David, as we, which, which translation should we use in the NIV? And that's fine. And I never want you to not have confidence in the Bible you're reading. But there's something wrong in the NIV <laughs> translation of this passage. Now, I think there was a little failure of nerve on the part of the translators. So let me tell you, cut to the chase. So this is Caleb speaking, and he, Caleb's saying to Joshua, Now give me the hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard that the Anakites were there, and their cities were large and fortified. But, and this is the NIV, the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Sounds good, doesn't it? Lord, sadly, that's not what the Hebrew says. And if you, this is why I encourage people to compare translations. We are so privileged as English language speakers to have a multiplicity of translations when there are so many people that have one or none. Uh, but here's, here's uh, Reimer's literal translation of, uh, of this verse. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and that their cities were large and fortified, but Ulai, I've not translated for you yet. That's the, any Israeli uh, Hebrew speakers here? Somewhere? Maybe. Ulai, perhaps. Perhaps I will drive them out, as the Lord said. Maybe. And other uh, widely used English translations will give you that translation, so you don't have to just take my word for it. So this is a curious wording, I would suggest, or it might strike us that way. In spite of Caleb's grounds for confidence in God's promise and his own capacity, I'm 85, but my figure is not as it was when I couldn't claim that myself, I'm afraid. He says, maybe I can drive them out. Is it a failure of nerve on Caleb's part? or a lack of confidence in God's provision, or some expression of doubt coming into Caleb's words here. And I want to suggest to you, it's none of those things. On the contrary, in thinking and speaking this way, Caleb leaves open some other manner or means by which God's promise would be realized. I think it's a mark of Caleb's theological humility and demonstrates his absence of spiritual presumption. 
Israel's God, Caleb is saying, Israel's God is under no constraint to act in the manner in which Caleb might anticipate God would act. God can act however God wants to act. But God will act. This is quite a different matter than doubting God's capacity or willingness. Everything Caleb has seen of this God through his life reassures him that God is faithful to his word. And this, maybe, ulai, does not undermine that confidence. Just this one word then, perhaps, blink and we miss it. But with Caleb, it demonstrates his submission to a sovereign deity who is not bound to bring about the fulfillment of his promise in the way that I, a mere creature, might assume he will. And again, if you think this is just Caleb, there's a fascinating parallel in Paul's own experience, Paul's own writings. His zealous commitment to know Christ Jesus in Christ's sufferings, so also to know the power of his resurrection, that remarkable passage in Philippians 3. Paul writes this. He, he wants to know the power of his resurrection so that by any means possible, it's sometimes translated, if somehow, Paul says, I may attain the resurrection of the dead, somehow. Uh, I don't know how precisely, which is, I think, what Caleb's saying here, but somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So confidence in God's faithfulness, absolute confidence in God's faithfulness, can coexist peacefully with humility concerning the ways in which God's faithfulness will be shown. I think... Scripture throughout suggests that this isn't something that's just possible, but it's the way it must be, that uh, we have this openness to God's fulfilling his promise in God's way, in God's time, so on, even while we remain confident in God's promise. Well, more we could say about that, but uh, we'll move on to our last uh, point in our reflection on Caleb in relation to promise, and fairly briefly on the provision. Having seen his person and reflected on his relationship to the promise, what was provided in the promise? Well, we know already, don't we? It was Hebron. And of course, you can still visit Hebron today. Don't recommend it just now, though. Uh, south of Jerusalem, a place of conflict. But the request for the land that we would come to know as Hebron is what's granted to Caleb by Joshua through God's promise. But that's not the end of the matter. Caleb's got to take it. And he's very willing to do that, much as Israel took the land through its battles with the Canaanites. In fact, it's clear from our story and even more clear from the way it continues into chapter 15 that Caleb's efforts to act on the promise that he's given lead him into even deeper conflict with the inhabitants of the land. And we get a hint of it in our passage, uh, and it's more fully described in chapter 15, but here in verses 14 and 15 we read, so Hebron belonged to uh, Caleb, well, verse 15, Hebron used to be called Kiryat Arba, 
after Arba, the greatest man among the Anakites, or as I like to think of them, the Anakim. And in chapter 15, there's three of the tribes of the Anakim that Caleb has to defeat to take this territory, the Anakim. Who are they? Well, almost ironically, the Anakim are the very race of giants who so put fear into the heart of the ten spies back in the book of Numbers. The very enemies who uh, seemed so large that Israel could not defeat them. It's the defendants of Anak that Caleb must defeat to claim his promise. So it's a great promise, but it called on Caleb to confront a great enemy drove him into conflict with giants. So is this a case of, well, be careful what you wish for? Uh, well, no, of course not, because this isn't a matter of wish fulfillment, but of uh, acting on, or as we thought about as we began, standing on the promises of God. It reminds us of what we considered a moment ago, that Caleb's theological humility, if you like, that, that our relationship to God's promises is not marked by triumphalism or assumption or presumption. Rather, its hallmark is confident in God's purposes and openness to that promise, that purpose, that plan being realized in surprising ways. And so because of that, walking acting, thinking consistently with God, God's ways, just as Caleb has done. But it means, too, that we can sometimes look on God's promises with disappointment and confusion. I thought I had a promise, and now all I have is an enemy, the worst enemy I've ever faced yet. <clears throat> but consider, uh, one of the central promises of the Old Testament made to the people of Israel would that there would be one who would come from the line of David, an anointed one, a Mashiach, a Messiah, a Christ, who would reign with justice and restore creation. So in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet promises, I'll, God promises through the prophet, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and I, the Lord, will be their God. In fact, earlier in that very passage of Ezekiel 34, it says, God says, I will be their shepherd. How is God their shepherd and one from the line of David their shepherd? Of course, it comes together in the, in the great child of promise, the Lord Jesus himself. But who was prepared for the longed-for Messiah to be crucified on a Roman cross? Or who understood divine promises better than Jesus himself? And yet he approached Jerusalem and wept over it. Or he stood at Lazarus' tomb standing open and cried out. Promises don't necessarily mean that everything is sweetness and light or that there's an absence of disappointment or confusion. Even Jesus prayed with turmoil in the garden. 
the one who knew God's promise more, who knew God's promise perfectly. So uh, much here to think about promise and our relationship to it. And I wouldn't want us to think that as we finish this reflection on Caleb, that it's uh, all to be worried over. It's a promise and we can be confident in it. And our very passage finishes then the land had rest from war. And we look forward with confidence to this rest that God himself provides as we seek to live faithfully for him.